The best tellers of stories are those who have lived them. When it comes to the political world of the 1960s and 1970s, including civil rights, family policy, and persistent challenges surrounding the American family and the problem of poverty, John Roy Price is one of the great storytellers. He's the author of The Last Liberal Republican, an insider's perspective on Nixon's surprising social policy, a book that is part political memoir and part policy whodunit in its retelling of the early chapters of a decades-long fight over American welfare policy. For this episode, I'm pleased to be joined by AEI President and Poverty Scholar Robert Doerr, as well as the Director of AEI's new Center for Opportunity and Mobility, Scott Winship, each of whom joined me in engaging both parts of John Rice's book, The Personal and the Political. If you're a fan of political history, sit down for this fireside chat about a past that continues to inform our present. As I mentioned in the intro, we've got a couple extra contributors to the podcast today, one of whom is AEI's president, Robert Doerr. And John, you and Robert share a lot in common. Although you, this is the first time that you've met, you're both New Yorkers, you both spent careers working in, thinking about, writing about poverty and the ways and means of addressing it. But there's a deeper connection too, which is that you, in the day, back in the day, worked for Robert's father, John Doerr, who was one of the great heroes of the American Civil Rights Movement. So Robert's only with us for a few minutes here, but I wanted to give him an opportunity to just talk a little bit with you about his dad, because he's a great figure and he created a great son who now leads this institution. And there are probably things you know about him that Robert doesn't know about him. So that's a great uh, opportunity for me, Brent. And thank you very much for having me on the podcast. I greatly appreciate this. And and it is true that, uh, John, you worked for dad in 1967, 1968 in, in Brooklyn when dad had come there after his time in the Civil Rights Division at the request of Robert Kennedy to help start an anti-poverty program in one of the worst, most difficult, most troubled poor communities in America, in Bedford-Stuyvesant and central Brooklyn. And I guess what I'd want to know is, so you saw him when he was, when I was that age, I was five. So I didn't really know what he was like or what he did or what was your interactions with this fellow Republican. Dad was a Republican who happened to work on these issues and work for the for Robert Kennedy. What was he like in this? And he was from the Midwest. You at least knew your way around Flatbush and Atlantic. I mean, Dad was learning about Brooklyn. And Iowa, having gone to Grinnell. <laughs> yeah, Island, that's right. Mother having so what come were, from a dairy farm. Yeah, well, what, were, what was it like in central Brooklyn with Dad in 1967? Well, he was, of course, an imposing figure with a, a reputation that well preceded him. Speaking of the Republican connection, it's also very much worth noting that with Bob Kennedy, the co-founder of the effort, was Republican United States Senator Jacob K. Javits, who was my mentor. So I was, if you will, the Republican on the staff, heavily populated by Bob Kennedy people. But yes, uh, the, the senator had brought your dad in and he brought with him one of his most esteemed and, and wonderful colleagues, David Norman, who had been with him in the Civil Rights Division. Your dad started out at full throttle, and he started me doing things like uh, saying, John, I want you to go investigate the degree to which the sanitation business is, you know, overwhelmed with organized crime, and you figure out what to do about it. (laughs) 
we then went into somewhat more safe harbors in terms of personal safety, which was his encouragement of me to put together a mortgage pool for home ownership in Bed-Stuy. Mm-hmm. And your point is interesting. You say one of the most economically distressed areas, what, what your father and Kennedy and Javits had figured out, what Kennedy had at first, was that they thought of Harlem, they thought of Bedford-Stuyvesant. They chose Bed-Stuy because, unlike Harlem with about a 2% home ownership ratio, Bed-Stuy had a 23 or 24% home ownership ratio. So their assumption, I think justified, was that it would be a little bit more opportune to try to really get in there and work at it. Yes, the housing stock in Bedford-Stuyvesant is now and was then really a, a sort of underappreciated great asset, and it's grown into a beautiful neighborhood in the it has, years since say, then. The real estate area, appreciated. Um, and it's uh, the that was one thing that Bed-Stuy had was this wonderful yes. uh, collection of of housing. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned Senator Javits very much because when I first came to AEI, one of the first persons I met who was associated with AEI in a variety of ways and is also still in any poverty fighter is Carla Javits. Senator Javits's daughter, and she became a great ally and partner of ours. Thank you. She runs a, a really great uh, employment services program out on the West Coast. And when she found out our connection, we had the same sort of reunion. And I also will tell you, John, if you go to Bedford-Stuyvesant now and you go to where the current Restoration Headquarters is, Restoration's still in existence. It's it's um, There's this great plateau, sort of collection of portraits of the great starters of this initiative, Senator Javits. John Doerr, Robert Kennedy, Frank Thomas, yes. and there was a, a judge named Judge Jones who was one of the, was the local leader That's that helped get it. And the fact that the community, you know, after all these years and all that we've been through as a country and all that the efforts that they made, still celebrates these great people that made an effort to to help a troubled community grow and prosper is a great thing. It is, and it was an economic development project. It was a jobs development project and a financing project. And your dad and I had a further connection uh, due to the Republican <laughs> connection, which was that he gave me a leave of absence to work on the Rockefeller presidential campaign where I ran a piece of it in 68, after which, of course, we lost uh, to the Nixon people. Nixon then approached me to join his campaign. I, I had dyspepsia. I had the usual reaction to Nixon of someone who'd fought him in the primaries and so on. So I, I called your dad and I said, I'd like to meet. Could we meet at Junior's yeah. Flatbush <laughs> Avenue for breakfast? Junior's is still there. And still selling ch- cheesecake. Cheesecake, that's right. Uh, and so your dad and I met there and I said, I've got something I need your guidance on. And he said, what's that? And I said, Nixon has approached me and I, I'm just uncertain. And he said, John, he said, you're a Republican, aren't you? And I said, yes. And he said, let me say something to you. He said, of course you work for Richard Nixon. He said, look at the other side. He said, it is Dick Daly, the boss of Chicago. It is David (laughs) Dubinsky, big labor, ILGWU, and John Connolly, the the Southern Democrat governor of Texas. He said, don't be squeamish about it. Of course you work for Richard Nixon. Fast forward, 1974. Two, I was back in New York. I was running a part of Manufacturers Hanover Bank, invited your, your father to a luncheon, and we spoke afterwards, and he said, John, this was, it was 73, actually. It was well into the Watergate mm-hmm. saga. 
And uh, your dad said, John, do you know any of these people? John Mitchell. So I say, well, I, you know, I knew a few of them. He said, some of those birds deserve to be on the third tier at Leavenworth. <laughs> wow. Shortly after that, your dad became the head of a staff of 39 lawyers of the House Judiciary yeah, I, I am. Committee. Well, that, that's interesting that he said that. He was a loyal Republican. He certainly voted for Nixon in 68, and, and he did go back to serve the House Judiciary Committee. And the one presidential impeachment proceedings that has been successful and that led the people that led the country feeling as if that was a good thing the led to the president's resigning and, and to a large extent that was due to my dad's judgment. He so yeah, character, he had character, Robert. He was, you know, some people thought of him as a little bit stiff necked, but that was because he was consistent and he was tough minded. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's very kind of you. Very nice. You say that he was a little stiff necked, but he was, he had a good sense of humor, too. I will tell you an interesting thing, and, and this is for you, Brent, and Scott, who's coming on later. You know, this group of Republicans who wanted to bring free markets and economic development and and prosperity to troubled communities that were largely populated by African-Americans or minorities and certainly struggling Americans, it, it didn't wasn't just Jacob Javits and Richard Nixon and, and John Dorb and John Roy Price, but it was also, this is interesting, the very same time you were working with dad and getting his advice or having, you know, talk about your future, he got a call from the, right after the president was a, was in office for a while, from the new head of OEO, the Office of Economic Opportunity, whose chief at that time was Donald Rumsfeld. And Donald Rumsfeld's deputy was Richard Cheney. And Richard Cheney was also someone who worked in Wisconsin Republican politics. So that's another little aspect to remember. Yes. And they were working on anti-poverty initiatives from the OEO. And Don Rumsfeld was sitting in Washington one day and someone said, well, the guy you really got to have is you got to go get John Doerr up in Brooklyn and go up and get him. And he flew up and they met out at LaGuardia with what you used to call the shuttle, out by the shuttle where the airport used to go, planes go back and, and talk for an hour. And Rumsfeld tried to persuade dad to come back to Washington and go into the Nixon administration working for OEO. That's fascinating. And dad said, I've just started this. This has just begun. I've taken on this responsibility. I feel I owe it to Robert Kennedy, who by that time uh, was no longer with us. And he didn't feel he could walk away before he had completed the assignment or at least given it his all. And so he stayed for the next six years. I grew up in Brooklyn and, uh, and I raised my children in Brooklyn. And when dad died, we did a little collection of his writings and quotations from his selections. And one of them was an interview he did about coming to Bedford-Stuyvesant and working with you on that project. And he said, I see a resurgent Brooklyn, a Brooklyn that becomes one of the great metropolitans uh, as centers of the, of the country. Now, I think he saw it by the end of 1970, the 70s, or maybe the 80s. Didn't really happen until we got the reforms that came place in the later 90s under Mayor Giuliani and Governor Pataki and Bill Clinton and the resurgence of the city. But ultimately, he was proven yes, ultimately. Uh, correct. <laughs> so, Subspecies aeternitatis. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. That's good. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's really yeah, great to see you. And uh, Thanks, we have a little community of friends, and you're one of them. So thanks. Thank Take care. Thanks, Take care. Robert. Well, we're going to move past the sentimental <laughs> wishing you, my you, know, you know look back and get into the hardcore 
policy and historical perspective on something I think is just extraordinary. And, you know, I was, you know, as a person interested in history and somebody who studied welfare policy, I kind of knew that, you know, knew a little bit about Richard Nixon and his interest on the domestic side, not just his foreign policy work, but his interest on the domestic side. And this book does just a marvelous job of, of bringing that history alive. And it's a significant history, even though it may only appeal to a narrow slice of us who, you know, kind of make our daily bread out of understanding welfare and uh, poverty and federal policy. You really bring it to life. So that's where I, I kind of like to start, which is, and this is alluded to in the conversation you just had with Robert, you know, Republican Party of the mid and late 1960s is very, very different from the Republican Party as we understand it today. It was in transition. You know, there was a, what had been for many years, a dominant faction of the party, which was the Northeastern Eisenhower slash Rockefeller Republicans who had a, a controlling interest, let's say, in the Republican Party. But this was the moment at which the that establishment was being challenged for power within the party by people in the, in the particularly in the West, but also in the South of the country. And I'm curious, and you talked a little bit about this, you know, you had the indigestion of getting a job offer from a rival campaign, which always creates a little bit of indigestion for anybody who's been through that. But my real question is like the big macro picture of like, you've got a party in transition and how did that feel for you as somebody who was seen, you know, had been through the Goldwater eruption of 64, had lost to Nixon in 68? You could really see power shifting here. How did that feel as somebody who was, who, who grew out of this older establishment? Or at least that's my impression um, that you grew out of that old well, establishment. It, in time, my view came to be that Richard Nixon was the final extension of that older establishment. And also my impression at the time was, this is a big church president. And he was bringing in not just me, but people from American Conservative Union or uh, you know YAF, Young Americans for Freedom. So it was, as Pat Buchanan often lamented, he observed but often lamented, Richard Nixon was ecumenical. He wanted to hear from all sides. So I was pleased. My first reaction was, uh, once I came on board, I was very, very happy to be a part of it because I saw, frankly, a lot of people who were placed as I had been in the more moderate offices of governors across country, not just Northeast, but Iowa, you know, Bob Ray in Iowa was the governor, George Romney in Michigan and elsewhere. So I took to it very quickly. Of course, there was always the sense that I wasn't one of the originals because they were all the guys who'd been the advance men for the campaign in 62 and even 60 and now 68. They were solidly in with the boss. I was the newbie. And as we'll get to Pat Moynihan, but as he told all of us, we are the ones who have to prove ourselves because we are not the originals. We, ha we have to uh, find our way toward 
policy issues which are going to resonate with the boss, and obviously loyalty, unless it comes to a point where you can't you can't uh, take on board some things. Sure. I neglected to do this a minute ago, so I'll do it now. We're also joined on this part of the podcast by Scott Winship, who leads our economic mobility work and poverty studies work. We haven't, I don't know if we've quite settled on a name for what it is, but Scott brings, uh, you know, many years of work in as both a, um, a student and a researcher, but also somebody who's actually worked in poverty programs in places around the country. And he's somebody he's, uh, he's not unlike me, I think in the sense that, that we both started out somewhat further on the left than we are now and we've been those conservative those liberals who were mugged by reality and then became conservatives on this question so he's going to be asking questions in here too and i want to i really want to encourage him to do that and not just like sit there very nicely and quietly as he's been doing but to weigh in on anything that we're talking about could Um, i even before you go ahead uh, and before you take wing, Scott, <laughs> just go a little bit further into what we were just talking about, yeah. about the, the moderates and the conserv- emergent conservatives. Mm-hmm. And it's important, as I've thought it through, to visualize the Republican Party in the mid-20th century, and by that I mean even during the changing times in the New Deal forward, there was what I called a presidential wing of the Republican Party, and they were all moderates or Activists, at least, might be the safest word, not progressives necessarily or liberals. They were activists. They believed government had an important role to play to address the needs that they saw and that their voters needed. And so you had, even starting with Alf Landon, who ran against Roosevelt in 36, he was a moderate Republican governor of Kansas. And he and the governor of California were the only two Republicans who'd been reelected two years earlier. And then you have Wendell Wilkie in 1940, hardly a, a sort of a dyed-in-the-wool conservative. And then none other than Thomas Dewey, twice the governor of New York. You had uh, Wendell Wilkie was an Indianan. Tom Dewey was from Michigan. These were not purebred, you know, Eastern establishment, social register type uh, Republicans. At the same time, you always had in the Congress a more conservative, less activist-oriented, and yes, isolationist group of Republican office holders, House and Senate. And uh, this was a tension that went on, and the battle, of course, was between Dewey and Taft, basically Robert Taft of Ohio, over a period of eight or nine years leading up to the Eisenhower Convention. Uh, so it was not a homogeneous Northeastern Republican establishment that was controlling the party. It, it was uh, a variety of more more moderate uh, elected officials all over the country as Republicans. Yeah, that in itself is a really interesting sort of uh, political history of like, I mean, that presidential wing. As I call it. As you call it. Yeah was always a fairly thin layer, right, of the Republican Party. Like the the, the base of the party was much more in that um, populist or more conservative or more... Um, slow-moving. Yeah, slow-moving and yeah. just in, in, in instinctively conservative mm-hmm. about change. Um, and so 
you're right. This isn't what even what we see today isn't new, right? Uh, the, the this is a part of a long term pattern yes. um, for the party, and yes. I think Matt Continetti and his book on the right have really captured this. Um, you know, even Herbert Hoover could be said in his 28 election campaign to have been part of a moderate activist presidential wing and he got the nomination and he won Mm -hmm. and andrew mellon who was with him in the cabinet secretary of the treasury uh, kept grumping in his mellon's diaries how much of an activist how a dangerous liberal in effect Mm -hmm. herbert hoover was which you're you're actually sitting in andrew mellon's building oh are we this indeed is, okay yeah this is yes. where this is his pied terre here in dc so well, i'm living and having worked in his town pittsburgh <laughs> so scott i want to make sure i'm not crowding you out if there's anything you want to get in here on um please please do yeah definitely we'll jump in i'm gonna, I'm gonna sort of wait till we okay uh, get closer to the uh yeah policy battles yeah okay so the bridge figure here aside from john Dore and his encouragement you to join the administration was Pat Moynihan, uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the then not an elected official, but a scholar of American society and, and of poverty. And, um, and he became your immediate team lead. Um, so tell us about your connection to, to him. It was by virtue of my having worked on the general election campaign, my boss on that cam- campaign, who was Richard Nixon's law partner, Len Garment, said, I'd like to place you in the White House. And meanwhile, and I'd never met Pat Moynihan, he was being considered to be brought on as the advisor on urban affairs. And there was reason to that, because if you look back at 67, 68, it was a period of enormous stress. And there were race riots in and up, upsets in 120 cities, and uh, Moynihan was at the time the head of the Joint Center for Urban Studies at Harvard, MIT, and, and, and Nixon had his attention drawn to Moynihan by a speech that Moynihan gave to the Americans for Democratic Action, in which Moynihan said, looking at the 60s, uh, he said, look, uh, American institutions are under grave threat. He said, this is a time for the liberals and the conservatives to find a way to work together to preserve the very fabric of society. And Nixon reacted to that, and uh, there started to be a little bit of a, of a correspondence. And so uh, then Nixon finally did offer Moynihan the job, and my boss, Len Garment, said, you got to get to know Moynihan. So he and I had lunch on my 30th birthday, and Pat Moynihan, after talking with me, said, I want you to join me be my counsel, do everything I'm doing. It's about the cities, which is about ultimately race. And so I began working as his factotum. So going back to the, uh, the idea of the, the straddle within the Republican Party, and this requires just a little bit of political history in order for me to ask the questions that I want to ask, which is that Nixon saw what happened in 64 when basically uh, LBJ conspired with Barry Goldwater to break up 
the Democratic coalition that had run the run the country. They weren't on the phone talking no, about no, this every day. No, of course not. I'm, I'm exaggerating for effect here. Right. But I mean that LBJ um, was and Goldwater, in a sense, conspired to do this because one of them was bent on, I mean, LBJ was bent on getting civil rights and voting rights through and the war on poverty and the great society programs that he wanted to do. And that revealed the fracture in the Democratic coalition. At least I think it revealed the fracture in the Democratic coalition. So Republicans were then able under Goldwater to bring in to their coalition at least some of these Southern Southern conservative Democrats who became functionally Republican at the presidential level after that. This is what I don't understand about Nixon, and I want you to explain. Given that dynamic, Nixon gained the White House in large part because he was able to consolidate these Southern formerly Democratic voters into the Republican Party. I know you're anxious to get in and tell me why I'm wrong about this. So, but what made him think on the basis of that coalition that he created that that coalition was interested in his version of domestic policy that he was going to pursue well, as that's president? A, that is a very good question and deserves the right answer. But if I could just back up, when you talk about Lyndon Johnson deciding to go for the Civil Rights Act and then voting rights, how did he get there? He got there with the Republicans. It was Republicans voting overwhelmingly in both the House and the Senate for the 64 Act and for the 65 Voting Rights Bill. 64 Act in particular, Goldwater was one of, I think, only four Republicans who voted against it. 26 or so uh, voted in favor of it. And uh, as, as Nixon saw, Lyndon Johnson had to turn to Everett Dirksen, who was the Republican leader in the Senate, for this to happen. And Dirksen whipped the Republicans, a conservative Illinois Republican, whipped the Republicans willingly into supporting those civil rights bills. Goldwater having stood out like a sore thumb and being the prospective nominee of the party that very month of the passage of the bill. When the fight was over, I'm told that Everett McKinley Dirksen gave Barry Goldwater an improper gesture. Uh, but so Nixon, Nixon then bridged uh, your, your, your term bridged the chasm, which it was between the moderates after Goldwater's 64 convention and the conservatives by campaigning with full throttle for Barry Goldwater because Nixon was a tactician and a strategist. And Nixon understood that if he could just, flog himself out there on Goldwater's behalf that the conservatives would be soft toward him, sympathetic toward him, if not enthusiastic about him. And as Pat Buchanan tells me, he said, if Nelson Rockefeller hadn't been in the race in 68, Nixon would have run as the moderate for the nomination, but he would have been able to pull some of the Goldwaterites in. Okay. So let's get to the second half of the question then to 68, which is, he has endeared himself to the Goldwater supporters. Yes. He's gotten the nomination. Yes. He already has the backing of the, uh, pro- the the presidential frosting on the GOP cake. They've they've already you know they they see their guy. They know he's but but Nixon knew he had to have known 
that this coalition that he had created in 68 had a substantial number of people who were not going to be excited about a, a policy agenda, which I think then and now is regarded as being pretty liberal. Breathtaking. Yeah. So what made him think he could get away with it? I don't know whether he was ready yet to launch his policy agenda. What he was doing was one thing at a time. And he knew how to secure the nomination. Don't forget it was a three-way race. George Wallace was in the, in the running as well. So Nixon's uh, courting of the South was not simply to try and pick up the Goldwater people. It was to deflect the Wallace vote in part, too. And uh, yet Nixon always, always had in him this, this instinct, as I feel and saw, to mount a charger. He wanted to find a charger. He wanted to change the world. This was something he'd imbibed from his Quaker mother. I, I absolutely agree uh, with friends who've said that. And he bided his, he waited his moment. Same on China. He was ready to roll out China in the 68 campaign. And Howard Hunt, the silver, you know, gazillionaire, and Pat Buchanan wrote strenuous letters to Nixon uh, saying, don't you ever do that. You will lose the conservative vote. So Nixon buttoned his lip on that. But his impulses were strong. And on social policy, to come to your world, he was ready to do some extraordinary things. One more question, and then, and then <laughs> on to you, Scott, which is, so talk about the constellation of forces within the Nixon White House around his domestic agenda, and particularly the guaranteed family income or negative income tax sure. or... UBI or whatever we're going to call this thing. But because it was a broad coalition, there were, those people are all represented. Yes. Talk about the the balance of forces within the White House around this. Well, clearly, as we've said, uh, Moynihan was from another world <laughs> and yet Nixon immediately warmed to him and Moynihan had a point of view. Moynihan was, for all of his life, interested in family policy in the issues of poverty and, and child poverty and family stability. For Moynihan, and here was a link with Nixon, he was concerned about the major institutions in the society being eviscerated, being changed, being disregarded. And he shared this with Nixon, and he said to Nixon coming in, he said, one of the most crucial tasks for you is to restore confidence in American institutions. And Moynihan saw one way of doing that was to do something about poverty and to do something to change the welfare programs, which had invited enormous scorn and distaste and criticism, but which Moynihan knew had to do their stated objective, which was to alleviate poverty. So there was Pat Moynihan as a sort of beacon on the one side. But don't forget, not just in the White House, but throughout the administration, Nixon had brought in some very interesting people. George Shultz was the Secretary of Labor and was a crucial factor in the rollout, uh, the creation and the rollout of the Nixon welfare proposal. And then you had his old friend, Robert Finch, who was the Secretary of the Health and Education and Welfare-related department, named HEW. And so the two of them and Moynihan were probably the most important figures uh, in the administration 
who were lobbying for major change. Interestingly, though, the Secretary of Defense, Melvin Laird, a conservative Wisconsin member of the House, was sort of a, a, a very interesting figure himself and had in uh, some Republican papers he created while in the House, he had brought in Milton Friedman, and Friedman had written an article for Republican papers suggesting the negative income tax. So uh, it was coming from different points of the compass, if you will. Now, the opponents of it were notably Arthur Burns, who, who was an Austrian-born, actually Ukrainian-Poland-born uh, uh, economist, a very serious sort of dour man, who wound up as Federal Reserve Federal Chair, Reserve Chair, later Ambassador to Germany. Yeah, but Arthur was a thoughtful, if if very conservative guy, and he fought tooth and nail against the evolution of this idea. As did my equivalent on the Burns staff, Martin Anderson, who became a the leading domestic policy guy for Ronald Reagan later and was much more comfortable in the Reagan administration than he felt in, in or welcomed in the Nixon administration. So you had the lineup of Moynihan, Finch, Schultz, really, and you had Burns and some others uh, more on the, uh, even the head of congressional relations, Bryce Harlow. And was Cap, Wein- was Cap Weinberger? Not really present not, yet. Not really present not, yet. Not okay. there yet, no. Yeah. Later, he was crucial in 73, 74, in a revival of the welfare reform, which Pat Buchanan, uh, with his teeth clenched, said to me, we called Big FAP, Big Family <laughs> Assistance Plan. <laughs> but So you had those. And then what you had was a very interesting figure, John Ehrlichman, a Seattle land use lawyer who had been working with the Nixon crowd since 1960 as an advanced man, had earned the trust of Bob Haldeman, his friend and boss, who was chief of staff by now in the White House, and of course, of Nixon. And Ehrlichman watched and commented out of the side of his mouth to Nixon constantly on this conflict between Burns and Moynihan. He said, really, Mr. President, what you need is an intermediary here who can be quite independent in their judgment and, you know, help you get a, a neutral view as between these two. So Ehrlichman wound up emerging through the middle of that conflict. And as an honest broker, and at the same time, as Ehrlichman writes in his own memoir, Witness to Power, he said he, Ehrlichman, in 64, was a Scranton guy or a Rockefeller guy. He didn't want to see Goldwater take over. And the conservatives always worried about John Ehrlichman with some reason and felt that he was you know, putting his hand on the scales in the side of the activists. And indeed he was. And so Ehrlichman was crucial, but so was Richard Nixon. Yeah, I was going to say. So was Richard Nixon. Yeah, and that comes through very clearly in the book. Yeah. Like, I can't, I couldn't believe in it was amazing. the book how much time Nixon it spent on this. It was extraordinary. Yeah. yeah. It was extraordinary. As I mentioned, Martin Anderson, at one point, in an attempt to you know throw the, the railroad tie under, under the train and stop it, got excited about an 1834 English poor laws issue, <laughs> the Spenumland program, and trying to show how, how the Schultz, uh, Moynihan, Bob Finch proposal for welfare was just like the English poor laws, which had failed miserably. And here is 
Marty writing to Nixon about 19th century British poor laws. Moynihan cranks up his academic friends, I mine. We do this, you know, rebuttal, sir rebuttal, sir rejoinder. Nixon's reading all this stuff as it comes in, putting marginal notes on it, sending the draft decision papers, which I had written, out to other friends of his not in government saying, take sides, because I had, you know, preferred option, less preferred option. And so Nixon was totally in the game and engaged for so many reasons, uh, part of which I think stem from his always having lived not at the very edge of poverty, but knowing it. Yeah, yeah. All right, this is where I'm going to turn this over to Scott to talk about the big issues that drove the debate about Nixon's um, guaranteed family income or family assistance plan. It kept evolving. The names kept changing. But Yeah, no, I, I found the discussion fascinating. I guess my first question is sort of related to Brent's about, you know, why did uh, President Nixon think this was going to sort of be the thing to resonate with his supporters? And I guess the way I would phrase my question is, why did something like a negative income tax, the family assistance program, have more success uh, under Republican uh, Richard Nixon than it did under Democrat Lyndon Johnson? Your your book gives the flavor. I think it'd, it'd be fascinating to read as a staffer. You know, as, uh, that's uh, why it that's high praise. Me. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, <laughs> as, as sort of a, a you know a guidebook. How do you shepherd stuff through as a as a staffer? Because you do get the impression there's some kind of continuity in the Office of Economic Opportunity, yes. um, for instance, embodied in Moynihan to some extent of folks who just stuck it out and, and sort of they they didn't have an opportunity under LBJ. Here comes President Nixon, much to their surprise. Uh, they to do have an opportunity. Yeah, right. So so what's the explanation? In, in some ways, you know, I wonder if, if it's that we're dealing with two presidents who, you know, we're not especially ideological by, by a lot of standards. I think it's debatable whether LBJ was you know, ever as liberal as, as he's come to be thought of as versus he knew what he needed to do to keep getting reelected. Nixon probably has an element of, of sort of wanting to do big things regardless of what the big things are. Is that the answer? Is the answer? Well, on welfare, it's important to remember that the welfare issue in 1968 was not unlike the immigration issue today mm. in the sense that it was a hot-button issue. It was something which was on people's minds, and no need for you to remember, but I remember in the mid-1960s, the welfare rules were exploding, and New York was the, you know, the first mover. And uh, Moynihan, in 1965, had noticed a disconnect between the lines moving of unemployment rates and welfare caseload. They'd been moving in sync for 30 years. And all of a sudden, this complete disjunction, and at a time when, let's take May 1969, when there has never been lower un unemployment until this week's report, yeah, last right. Friday's report, at that same moment that you had the lowest unemployment rate that was not recapped for 50 years, you had this explosion in the welfare rule. So Nixon understood it was a political issue. He had to address it. Unlike health care, which we may have time to talk about a little, where Nixon had a long history and visceral interest in it. Welfare was, was new, and it was topical. It was political. It was intense. So he had to do something about it. 
And interestingly, I, I met with him for the first time in my life two days before he declared for the presidency in 68, a group of eight or so of us at a dinner. And I said to him, I said, there's a fascinating situation going on. You have a convergence of opinion among the liberal economic community and among the conservatives that we need to think about a negative income tax, which is a means of providing cash assistance to poor working families. And and, uh, Nixon took it on board, but then he said, I've got to do something about welfare. I don't know where I am yet on it. But so it was a context. It was something about which he had to do something. And it was part of his transition task forces. But there was this other instinct in the man that I say that, that Moynihan cultivated, but it was there, the fire was there to be lit. Mm. And it was Nixon seeing himself as a Disraeli, Benjamin Disraeli, a Tory liberal, you know, a conservative person who saw the tectonic plates moving in the society and the need, and he was going to make radical change. Yep. It suited his temperament. Very interesting. If you could take us back, I think another interesting, uh, 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 there are a number of ways in which this debate, I think, are sort of hard to think about when when you're thinking about it in terms of, you know, having gone through the 1990s welfare reform yes. debate or sitting in 2020, um, when our categories like just are just don't necessarily apply. We we sort of have the hindsight with the evidence from the negative income tax experiments of, of knowing that they ended up actually probably disincentivizing work in a way that maybe the NIT supporters at the time wouldn't have wouldn't have expected or sort of certainly wouldn't have hoped for. How did people think about work disincentives back then? The impression I get is, you know, if you're giving a lot of benefits to mostly single parents and you're not giving benefits to other parents, that's going to create all sorts of bad disincentives for work, for marriage. And so the solution to that is to also give the benefits to married parents. And that makes sense on some level for sure. I think what the NIT evidence eventually showed, you couldn't have known this in 1970 um, or 69, was that the what's called the income effect, um, just that the, you get more income, you can live at the same living standard and not work as much, and so you get less less work. That effect ended up, I think, being bigger than most people at the time would have guessed. How are people thinking that the, the NIT, the negative income tax, was a better solution than AFDC? How were we thinking? Yeah. Well, first of all, both on the minds of Pat Moynihan and the president, very prominently, were the questions of family stability. Mm. And so to them, there was uh, an almost non-economic issue about, though it was impelled by economic incentives in the AFDC program, they thought. And that was that they wanted to find a way to encourage couples to stay together. And so uh, there were beginnings before Nixon of attempts to fiddle with that in the House. And, uh, you know, there were some adjustments to FTC with which you are far more familiar than I, I'm sure. But the point is, that was really a key focus. Don't forget, Moynihan had come from a broken family. Mm. And always, always, in his mind and in his heart somewhere, was the issue of how do you keep a married couple together, you know? So that was number one. Number two was that the tests to which you refer, the the experiments, which were 
small in universe and duration, limited in number, initially supported Mm. the family assistance plan. So when we were still making the decision in 69 and even into 70, the, the first flush of data from the Trenton experiment, which was created by the poverty program, the OEO, appeared to support two important things for Moynihan and Nixon, namely family stability was enhanced and work incentive was apparently in place. Mm. People were not laying on the oars. They were not, you know, taking a break. And then the later data within a couple of years began to go the other way. And it was on the basis of that data that I had a poignant moment with Nixon before he died, my last meeting with him, uh, in which he asked me point blank, he said, John, would it have worked? And bearing in mind what I had read about the Trenton experiment and Seattle and Denver, Mm. I said, I'm just not sure. What has happened since was that there was some more than a decade, decades later, work, I think, again, by University of Wisconsin, which said that at least as to the marriage stability point, that there was no evidence that the FAP-type structure would have created an incentive for marriages to break up. Mm. It was not so convincing about the, the work incentive thing. And I would ask you, turn the tables on you, Mitch, <laughs> what data might have emerged, let's say, from the expanded child tax credit to show whether there's an incentive or a disincentive to continue work? You know, all other things being equal. So yeah. right now you've got an experiment having been performed a bit larger than the Trenton OEO experiment. Yeah, no, that's and, absolutely right. It, it would be interesting if, if on the table were a conversation about having having expanded CTC in some states or some places, but not others, let it run for a few years, see what happens. Yeah, there's a lot to be said for experimentation. I, I absolutely agree with that. Yeah, I mean, the main argument, let's be honest, against family assistance plan at the time was made by Martin Anderson. Mm. And it was that there was a structure which was imperfect and it had a marginal tax rate of astounding levels, you know, which clearly the benefits cliff problem. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. hundred yeah. percent marginal yep. tax rate. And so that was clearly an impediment, but my friend Paul O'Neill, who was at the budget bureau as it was, well, it was OMB by, by within months. Paul has told me in recent years, he said it could have been fixed. Mm. It could have been fixed. Yep. Interesting. <laughs> My last question, I, you know, I, I think the sort of timing of this happens a few years after, you know, when this debate, mm-hmm. when the NIT debate was really happening. In some ways, you could argue that the eventual winner was Russell Long, right, who, uh, <laughs> who created uh, this work bonus. He was um, always the winner. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Created a work bonus, I think, in 1975. Don't tax thee, don't okay. tax me, tax the fellow <laughs> behind, behind the tree. tree. That's yeah. right. Among the things he could take credit or, or blame for it was probably, is the modern in, uh, earned income tax credit, uh, which had a little bit of a different structure, phased but in. But was, was, in effect, a progeny of Nixon's yeah. in its own way. Yeah, yeah. As, as George Schultz and, and Bob Finch said, why should Republicans be against helping the working poor? Yeah, no, that's that sounds right, and, and that was another interesting thing from from your book uh, is is you do get the sense you you sort of just mentioned it, alluding to the immigration debate. When I read it, I would sort of had the sense of the of the early nineteen nineties again, where yes. Bill Clinton was running on ending welfare as, as we, we know, know it. it. 
widespread, you know, dissatisfaction with a belief that it embodied all these bad incentives, uh, racial resentment sort of in the mix. And I, I guess I hadn't had as good a sense. Uh, I was born in 73, so how could I have, but, uh, that those sorts of things were, were in the air in 1969. Um, and I think you even talk about the NIT being appealing in some ways because it was hitting, you know, the working man, the forgotten, the, the forgotten middle class, um, or lower middle class. Yeah. yeah and that, that maybe that's, that's sort of one thing that actually maybe looks like it's appealing from a conservative or, or a center right perspective. Yes. As opposed to if you're if you're sort of a liberal Democrat, yeah, and the other thing, Mitch, uh, is that in the play out of how it would have performed, mm. it's interesting because it was not a heavily heavily minority oriented program. Nope. Rather, where was poverty? Moynihan would say, "Where's poverty?" He'd say, "It's in Dixie. Mm. It's in the historic Confederacy. That's yep. where the poor people in this country live, black and white." And so when Nixon asked me to do the briefing paper for Reagan, for his meeting with Reagan, and then invited me to be there with him in San Clemente with Reagan, uh, it was clear that, that in the FAP that a huge amount of the benefits were going to the South where poverty was most notable and entrenched, and they would be slightly more benefits going to the whites and because they were all poor, white and black. And so it, it was partly Moynihan and Nixon were unbelievably were thinking about trying to racially defuse mm. the, the whole welfare debate because AFDC had turned it into yeah. an attitude that it's only black women in Detroit and New York. You know? yep. Yep. Fascinating given, given that so many people associate uh, President Nixon with the Southern strategy and all of that and divisiveness, it, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, he was, it was fascinating because at that very meeting, he was, of course, with all this in his mind. I mean, he's yep. sitting down with Reagan, who had been his rival for the nomination, who basically picked up the Goldwater states in, in his quest yep. in 68. And it's, it's Nixon wrestling with himself, too, you know, about uh, what I really believe. And, and he told me on Christmas Eve of 68, 69, he said, you know, we're going to get FAP. I was sitting across from him at his desk and he said, we're going to get FAP. And he said, John, he said, of course, every year the Democrats will vote to raise the floor. Every year the Republicans will vote to oppose that. Every year the Democrats will win. He says, so what? He said, the important (laughs) thing is we will have established the principle. Fascinating. I thought so. (laughs) Complicated man. I don't want to drag us too far down this trail, but I was really taken in the you talked about the rebuttals and the sir rebuttals and the sir, sir rebuttals. I mean, going back and forth, but there was this, it's very reminiscent to me of what I see in kind of our policy discussions around CTC and other things. People are constantly trying to just tweak these things, just turn the dial a little bit this way, a little bit that way and trying to find this illusory balance. I mean, it just doesn't seem like that's really possible to achieve, but that's where the argument almost always goes. It's like, well, if we do it, you know, if we do it this way instead of that way, we're going to, you know, then we can eliminate part of that disincentive. But it just strikes me that we never, we never get there. And so I, anyway, I just wanted and to Nixon hear you. was trying to just sweep it all off the table uh, and go for broke mm-hmm. saying, what we've got doesn't work. He would say, this is a gamble on human nature. 
But he said, by God, we're going to try it because I think on the merits, it's the way we have to go. So he, he was trying to just get beyond yeah. the tweaks. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was, but even within the, you know, sort of clearing the table, that devolved into, you know, trying to get everybody on board behind something and you end up, of course, with a, and then you get yeah. who writes the bill yeah. and, you know, yeah. Is SSA, is Social Security Administration minister, or I, the I just, Treasury, or I just kept thinking as I was reading it. There's absolutely nothing new under the sun yeah. here. I mean, we it's have right. we have been Asties having the right. same argument since 1968. You know, over this, over this idea, since the poor laws apparently. Since <laughs> yes, the poor right, right, right. <laughs> I was there uh, during the poor laws. Uh, right. I'm sure yes. people said uh, in 1969. <laughs> so. Last question is, as I finished the book, uh, I was thinking, you know, this reads kind of like a murder mystery without a conclusion because there are so many suspects who killed GFI, who killed FAP, who killed the negative income tax. And it seems like there are too many suspects to choose like murder on the Orient Express. I, you know? I, um, well, I have a thought, yeah, which is this may not be the man who pulled the trigger, but the capo di tutti capi was Ronald Reagan. And I really believe that Reagan saw the opportunity for this issue to be a means by which he could pull the party away from the Nixon moderate centrist activist view. So it goes all the way back to the beginning of this conversation, yes, which exactly. was the Westerners wanting to end the disproportionate influence that the uh, the Eastern presidential layer of the party had uh, had exercised. Sure, in part. Yeah. And, and also, there's just a subplot, which is that Bob Finch, whom I mentioned, who was the Nixon's head of the Department of Health and Education and Welfare, had been lieutenant governor under Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. They were independently elected, and Finch got 300,000 more votes for lieutenant governor than Reagan got for governor. So there was a little ad hominem stuff going on as well. Mm-hmm. But but Reagan saw this as a means to peel the party away. And his welfare guy, Bob Carlson, wrote a book called Government is the Enemy. Mm-hmm. Sound familiar? And in it, he reveals that after that San Clemente meeting and going on for the next year, Reagan and he, the welfare guy of Reagan's, uh, figured out how they could do something in California and working with Russell Long could wind up beating both the liberal Democrats and quote the Nixon Republicans in Sacramento and nationally. Yeah. And Reagan sent Bob Carlson to work with Russell Long to defeat the family assistance plan for a year. He worked with, but it's also true. Like in Washington, the liberals hands weren't clean on this either. Right? No, they wanted to hand Nixon a defeat. Sure. Even if it meant giving up one of their own top priorities in terms of liberalizing yes. welfare laws. Yes. And, and I went with Dr. Moynihan to the civil rights leadership conference meeting one, one evening when we were trying to round up support. It was, this was all the typical groups of the Quakers and, and ACLU and, uh, you know, National Negro Women's Association and so on. And Pat had me outline the plan and then Pat pleaded with them. He said, look, this is something you should support. Don't not support it just because it's your old nemesis, Richard Nixon. Hmm. They couldn't 
yeah. get there. Yeah, no, tribal loyalties often trump everything, right? So, yeah. well, John, Roy Price, thank you so much for making the trip down again and for sitting here and sharing uh, this immense treasure of history, I think, uh, from my standpoint, it is anyway. And um, just thank you for writing the book and thank you for all that you've done in serving your country over the over the many decades. Well, I hope it's of some use to, to you all as you keep pursuing this and that it does not simply remind you that Ecclesiastes was... <laughs> thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. If you like what you heard, please subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also email vocation at AEI.org if you have questions or comments about the episode. We hope that wherever you are and whatever you do, that you find a job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working. <laughs>